Hello, today is Monday, May 6th. This is Perspective from Politics NC. Today we're coming from Raleigh. I'm here with Thomas Mills. Thomas, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, Kirk? Good. Well, we've been off for a little bit, so there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, First and foremost, I would say about 45 minutes ago, uh, there was a press release and said that Roy Cooper, the governor, is recovering from a herniated disc surgery, I believe. So hopefully he's better from that soon. I think they said he'd be back at work tomorrow and he's talking with his cabinet secretaries. So nothing's too serious. But last week there was a big teacher rally of March for respect, I think they called it, in Raleigh. And this is the second one in a row. And they came out the Red for Ed event uh, protesting teacher salaries and a whole slew of issues. So there was a budget released by House Republicans that same day or the day before, I think, outlining their new budget. And I just wanted to read from you quickly from this article. The teachers were a little upset because typically the raises come at the beginning of a fiscal year, which would start July 1st. But this budget proposal would not take place until January 1st, those uh those bonuses and the increase in their salaries. So the teachers are are not exactly happy about that because the, the raises will be pushed off until January 1st. On top of that, I think it was a 1% raise or about $500. And finally, the new pay scale starting 2020 would increase pay only for veteran teachers with more than 15 years of experience while starting pay would still remain at 35,000. And they did include some raises for teachers with advanced degrees. So we know there's a lot of issues that the teachers were rallying for. Thomas, could you talk about this budget proposal for education spending and and how that might play in the next year? Yeah, you know, and education takes up the vast majority of the budget, takes or or is the largest uh, single item. And so that is the big deal in the budget. What happens with education? And North Carolina has always been a school state. So, so it really, it matters a lot for both uh, real reasons because we need to make sure that we're educating our students and uh, for political reasons because uh, lack <laughs> underfunding our schools can become a political liability. Um, I think that raise is 1% for, for state employees and not, not for teachers. The problem that Republicans have is they, they always say they give us some percentage raise, say this is this is teachers raise X percentage. They did it last time. Last time the problem was is they didn't give any raises to older teachers. So this time they're not giving any raises to younger teachers. And so it's really deceptive when you say it's, you know, it's it's raises of X amount when in reality a lot of those uh, employees don't get any raises. Uh, the the other thing I think that upsets them is is uh, they've been making a big deal about how much they're going to fund education and fund teachers, and then all of a sudden they find out that in reality those those raises are, aren't kicking in until uh, the end of the year instead of the the beginning of the fiscal year, end of end of the calendar year. So you know that, that's it gives Democrats a little bit of fodder as they go into 2020 um, talking about. What's been what's going on with the schools? Republicans have drastically restructured the way our schools work. They've they've uh, redone the way we fund our teachers. And to be honest with you, some of what they've done is probably good. I mean, they raised the starting pay for teachers substantially. 
make that make and that makes North Carolina more competitive for trying to attract teachers uh, out of college. However, they really haven't gotten us where we need to be uh, in terms of above. We should be above the national average. We should not be satisfied with being paying our teachers at the national average, um, and. We really need to make sure that we're we're funding our schools adequately and not siphoning off dollars and sending them to uh, private schools. And that you know that's the that's a problem. And there there are other problems with education. The, the increase in charters is also seeing the resegregation of schools, and that that issue uh, will come up periodically. So you know, that that's education is always going to be a major political issue in this state. Uh, I think that's right, and it seems like it has been for a while. I, I do wonder, with that rally last week, I think it was really hyped up. I don't know that as many people attended as uh, some of the organizers would have hoped. How often do you think you can do a, a rally like that? I think the first one uh, had a big impact in 2018 prior to the General Assembly elections there, and there was a lot of interest in it, and a lot of people came that might not necessarily be the typical person to come to a rally or a protest but at what point does that have diminishing returns do you think i mean they couldn't do it annually really i you know i'm not i mean i'm i'm glad they they had a big impact i guess it was in 2018 when they had the big rally that was a huge rally and it had a lot of impact i worry about them keep trying to uh continually match match that i mean we saw similar things happen moral mondays had these 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 movements are quite often moments regardless of how much we hear it's a movement not a moment moral monday was really a moment and it and it 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 politicized a lot of people it galvanized a lot of people it had it had a a big impact on our politics but it really couldn't sustain that that uh, the level of enthusiasm once the General Assembly went home, when they cranked back up um, two years later, by 2015, you had diminishing uh, crowd sizes at the Moral Mondays. I think you'll see the same thing at these teacher rallies. They won't be able to sustain it for for forever. And, uh, and some of it has to do with they were successful. They pushed through more money for teachers they pushed through more money for schools and and some of the pressures off there after really starving teachers and starving our schools for a long time um that that's they they pushed through those uh really um thin budgets and after the general assembly i mean after after the great recession Right. Well, and a quick note back earlier, I mentioned the raise for state employees. I believe the governor's budget would have a 9.1% average raise for teachers, and the House budget would be 4.6% with the asterisk there that it only starts halfway through the next fiscal year. Moving to something different, now in the General Assembly, they're entering what's called crossover, so they have to get a lot of legislation pushed through to the other house they can't introduce new legislation after this point i think could you unpack what crossover is why that's important um any bill that does not pass one house of the general assembly i think i think crossover is thursday night is that right i believe so and and 
but it uh, if it has not passed one house of the General Assembly, it's dead for two more years. Now, there are ways around it. Um, you see new legislation get tacked on to existing bills, bills that come through either the House or Senate. They get they get hijacked in the short session and new language is written on them. Um, you know, that was how we ended up uh, with, I think it was the motorcycle um, abortion bill back in, in, uh, in 2013, I think it was. It was a, a, a bill that was passed ostensibly to um, allow people to ride motorcycles without helmets got turned into an anti-abortion bill, and uh, it, it became a big joke. Um, had a lot of lewd, crude names and uh, got national attention for, for what happened. But any bill, supposedly any bill that does not pass one house of the legislature by Thursday night is dead until the long session of 2021. Um, and so... You're seeing a lot of stuff fly through. Now and at the end of the session is when you start to see some things move so fast, people don't even know exactly what has has passed and what, what's been pushed through committees and what's been pushed through the floor. And all of a sudden we start to find out, well, wow, this bill really does this. Um, and, you know, it's fun to watch. It's not fun to be part of. You're going to have late nights, a lot of, lot of tension short tempers and uh but then it'll it'll shift on the other side of um uh crossover well and that's a that's a place where there's a lot of power obviously in in leadership and knowing how the rules work because like you said things happen fast and there's late nights but this is a you know ostensibly a part-time legislature a lot of these people come from all over the state and have to stay overnight and finish this legislation and i know people stay up late and they make bad decisions i remember i think there was uh, one representative who accidentally voted no and she meant to vote yes on something and she was the deciding vote i think on a an environmental issue so that's a it's a high stress scenario for the people there and it's an opportunity where sometimes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if it were not so fast-paced there's another issue that I wanted to raise to you, and you might not have insight into this, but there's been a lot of talk this session about Medicaid expansion, and I know some opponents of it are saying it doesn't need to be in the budget, but I know people who want to get it in the budget want it in the budget so that it's a big item that the governor has leverage on. Do you think that they're going to find some compromise on Medicaid expansion in this session and that the governor will continue to push back until they do um i don't know i you know uh famously uh one of the governors one of the people working for the governor when somebody asked how long is the session going to last he said when we pass medicaid expansion yeah and so you know uh i think there there's there's a lot of pressure to, to expand medicaid um other states most most other states have done it now uh, it's certainly, you know, it's Republicans are right. It doesn't come. It's not free, but uh, it certainly helps a whole lot of people. It tends to reduce the the costs for medic uh, uh, 
the the cost for medical care for other people because you start um, taking people uh, out out of um, uh, getting them out of out of emergency rooms, which are which are very expensive, and uh, you start to have people getting preventative care, which is a lot cheaper than emergency care, and you know it it it, it has generally worked where they've done it. Um, Republicans just claim it's going to bankrupt the system. Uh, at the same time, they continually pass these pa- these these tax cuts nationally that have exploded our budget. So, you know, it's just about what your priorities are. Well, moving away from policy issues, just today, I think, uh, in North Carolina, Garland Tucker, who is a retired Raleigh investment firm CEO, I believe, is going to primary Tom Tillis, the incumbent Republican. I know a few weeks ago there was a lot of talk that somebody might primary Tom Tillis. I think uh, Mark Walker was the presumed person that he he said he was not going to or he didn't uh, feel inclined to. But now there is actually is somebody here that is going to try and primary Tom Tillis. And I know we talked, um, or maybe I wrote about Tom Tillis had pretty low approval numbers um, within his own party, I think only lower was Cory Gardner. So I think about 51% of Republicans in North Carolina approved of Tom Tillis. So it seems like an opening for somebody to primary him. And from, from what I've seen, it looks like Garland Tucker is more of an ideological conservative. So could you talk about, maybe not so much about Garland Tucker since he's newly running, but just what that might look like from a, uh, conservative primarying Tom Tillis? Um, it gives to, it, it gives Tom Tillis a big headache, and uh, there are a lot of people who are not happy with Tillis, and most of those are your more tra- more conservative, traditional conservatives, your 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 Trump folks. Um, it'll be interesting to see this guy. Just looking at his profile, he doesn't really look like a Trumper, and. Uh, Yet, I think to beat Tillis in the primary, you've got to be the pro-Trump candidate. So, it'll be interesting to see where this guy falls. It'll also be interesting to see, he's never been a candidate before, how he takes to being a, a, a political candidate. Um, I think, if I had to guess right now, I'd say Tom, Tillis probably wins, but he may have to spend a lot of money and um, exhaust a lot of his resources in order to get over the, the, the threshold. Um, Democrats still don't have a declare a, a, a single candidate. They're probably going to have a primary in March. But if Tillis spends all his money trying to hold on to the seat, and Democrats will start at le- even with him, at least on the money side, uh, after that March primary. So you know, there's a lot that could go on. And and we have seen some incumbents get beat um, by, I mean, in, in the, the Tea Party folks came over, there were a bunch of incumbents that got beat. Richard Luger in Indiana got beat by a guy who couldn't win a, win a general election uh, in Indiana. Um, uh, Claire McCaskill uh, was going to get to, uh was going to run against a guy named Tim Talent, uh, Talent, I think it was his name, and then uh, Todd, uh, what's his name? Aiken. What? Aiken. Todd Aiken won that primary. The guy who 
made some comment about women women can't get raped or something like that. But so you end up with these uh, unelectable candidates, and it makes it makes it very hard. Um, I think Democrats should hope that this guy beats Tillis in the primary. I don't think that's going to be very likely. Incumbency is powerful. Um, well, so. so I've found uh, some qu- quick info just in the last hour. So the NRSC and the Tillis campaign come out swinging against Garland Tucker, uh, says James Arkin, who works for Real Clear Politics. Uh, NRSC calls it a quixotic adventure for a wealthy, out-of-touch liberal. So here's an interesting thing. In 2016, Tucker wrote an op-ed for the News and Observer, and it said, my commitment never to vote for Clinton means yes to flawed Trump. So basically was opposed to Donald Trump. But then it looks like by the time it was time for the election, he had uh, been able to rationalize that vote. And here's another tidbit. Tucker is a wealthy businessman and can self-fund, which is a complication for Tillis. So it looks like he's a millionaire. Uh, the anti-Trump stuff in that op-ed is an issue for a first-time candidate in a primary Tucker filed today, full announcement, likely later this week. So that's that's another interesting aspect. The guy, I think, like you alluded to, was not a proponent of Trump, but he did vote for him, it looks like. So right. that'll be interesting to come uh It'll to be the interesting right. to see if Trump jumps into this primary. I mean, uh, you know, Tillis, Tillis made himself look like a fool by writing an op-ed in the uh, Washington Post and then turning around and contradicting exactly what he said in order to get to get behind Trump on, on his emergency declaration. I wonder if Trump will repay the favor by coming down here and uh, campaigning for Tillis during the, during the primary. So I think that should about do it. They, like we said before, they've got crossover this week, so there probably will be some surprises that come up, bills that no one's seen yet or language change, but that'll all be later this week, and we will see what happens with that. Thomas, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Kirk.